You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word to um, Romans chapter 1. And Louise, I didn't uh, give you a thing, but if you could put the verses up as they come. We're only going to look at um, three verses, four verses, five verses. (laughs) And you may say, this is going to be a short sermon. Maybe. Uh, When you see what the verses are, Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. We're going to look at verses 14 to 17. First of all, we'll look at verses 14 to 15, then verse 16, then verse 17. Um, because we're logical in that way. It's, these are, this is an amazing letter. These are amazing words. And I just want to try to emphasize how amazing they are. You get a a letter in the mail, those of you who still get letters in the mail, and usually it's junk mail. So you get it, bin, 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 without even opening it. Um, Other times you get them, you just skim read them. You wonder whether that offer of $10 million from the widow in Nigeria is really going to change your life or not. And then some letters you get are fairly standard. And then one day you get a letter and as you're reading it, you realize that if it is true, that it will utterly and totally change your life. And I'm not trying to be a salesman, but if you grasp these verses that we look at today, if you grasp them, if you understand them, and if you apply them, then your whole life will be utterly and completely changed. Now, this letter is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to, uh, obviously, the people in Rome, written in the second part of the first century. Paul is in Greece. He's been wanting to go to Rome, unable to go there, but he has heard about the Christian church that initially developed amongst the Jews in Rome. Rome was a city of about a million people. The Jews were all expelled from Rome, and when they were returned, they discovered that the church had continued and grown and developed and was becoming quite famous throughout the uh, world. And there were tensions and troubles difficulties, misunderstandings, as there is in every church, as there is in this church. And uh, Paul wants to write them this letter. He intends to go to Spain because he considers that the church has already been planted in Rome, and Paul's intention was always to plant new churches. But he, he, he intends to stop in Rome. And what he does here is, I think one of the reasons that Romans is, is so intense about the gospel is He's writing it all down for them in case he's not going to be that long. Now, as it turned out, he ended up being with them for a considerable period of time um, and never made it to Spain as far as we know. But he he's, he's, has this amazing letter, which lots of Christians know in different parts. But just to give you the structure of it, we've, we've looked already at chapter 1 from verse 1 to verse 13, and where we go to verse 17, that's the end of the introduction. And then the rest of it, basically, apart from the the chapter at the end, is 
an explanation of verses 16 and 17. So verses 16 and 17 are the absolute core part of this letter. And I, I, would, I would also want to say this. They are the absolute core of what the Christian gospel is. And you'll see as we go through this why that is the case. It's the gospel, we call it. It's, it's the good news. Now, it's a shame that the word gospel has so many different meanings for different people. And I, I want to return it to this, this absolute essence of what Christianity is about, that it's about good news. So you're here, you're wandering off the street, maybe here for the first time. You've come here from, maybe you used to go to church or you still go to church, but things are confused and confusing. Maybe you're part of this church and uh, a lot of the news that you've been getting is quite bad and hard and difficult to deal with. And you hear the word gospel and you go, okay, yeah, I know about that. Those of us who grew up in the Christian brethren, you know, you had the gospel meeting on a Sunday evening and that was the one where you preached to all the non-Christians who weren't there. Um, But nonetheless, you preached a gospel message to non-Christians. I want to argue this, that every service, every worship, every prayer meeting is a gospel message because this is the good news and everything absolutely stems from this. So verses 14 and 15, let's read those. I'm bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Why was he eager to visit Rome? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul going to Rome? And let's put it in a modern context. Supposing he was going to go there just now and the church was organizing it. How would we publicize it? Posters. Apostle Paul brings revival. Come along. The man who wrote the New Testament, come and hear him. We would, you know, would we hold a parade? I was across in uh, St. Andrews yesterday at the, was it the Kate Kennedy parade? Which is so ironic because it's all about the martyrs, George Wishart and Patrick Hamilton, John Knox and others. And you have this parade where all the students are dressed in fancy dress, uh, like them, and it's kind of honoring them in some way. And yet, I will guarantee that the vast majority of the University of St. Andrews would utterly despise the gospel that these men preached and ironically would probably have applauded as they were killed. It's, would we have a parade? Well, Paul You wouldn't have a parade with Paul, and there's lots and lots of reasons why not. One thing is, and we we don't know this from the Bible, but it's a pretty well-attested tradition, is that Paul himself wasn't an impressive character. He didn't have a charismatic personality. According to John Stott, Paul was an ugly little guy with beetle brows, bandy legs, a bald pate, nothing wrong with that, a hook nose, (laughs) bad eyesight, and no great rhetorical gifts. In other words, Paul... Is he, he wasn't this kind of really flashy preacher or this, this powerful personality. You would meet Paul and you think, is that it? Is that it? What? How? No, there's got to be something more. Well, of course there was. But Paul wants to come to Rome not to parade, not to have you know, big meetings where he was going to do this and going to do that. He wants to come, as he said, to 
give, to have a harvest among them and to talk about the gospel. And notice the word that he says. He says, I am bound. Later on, he says, I'm eager, verse 15. He says, I'm not ashamed. There's no reluctance in Paul. There's no uh, grudging duty. Well, I suppose I had better do so. So, for example, I mentioned about we've got Easter coming up and you're a Christian and you think, I suppose I'd better invite somebody so I can tick that box. That's not Paul. He said, I'm so excited about coming. I'm so keen. I really want to come. And he said, I have to do this. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, there is a fascinating phrase that he used. He, he talks about basically being in debt. I'm bound to both the Greeks and non-Greeks. Um, he's talking the Romans. Why, why does he say, by the way, Greeks and non-Greeks? Well, it's barbarians. And where do, how do you get the term barbarians? I didn't know this. I, I thought this was fantastic, but you may not. But for me, it was fantastic. So some of you will get it. Um, the Greeks and I apologize to any Greeks present with us, thought, as they probably were, that they were the civilized people of the world. And indeed they were. Who did they have? I mean, they had Plato and Socrates and uh, this wonderful language. But then foreign people came to Greece, and the Greeks heard them, and they were like Russians and Germans and so on, or even Scots perhaps, and their sounding was quite guttural. And so the Greeks mimicked them and, co- and said that they went, ba, 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 ba. And that, they got out of the word of that, barbaroi, the barbarians, which actually came to mean the uneducated and the ignorant. It's how the Scots used to be looked at by some of the English. You know, oh, bar- well, the Highlanders, let's say the Highlanders. Oh, they're Highlanders, barbarians, uneducated, illiterate. And Paul is coming to Rome and he's saying to them, I've got to bring the gospel to the Greeks. And he doesn't literally mean Greek people. He means those who are educated and cultured. And I'm bringing the gospel to the barbarians, those who are considered uneducated and uncultured. And I actually think there's an important lesson in that for us. There is a problem for me in... Now, if you're you're not a Christian... um, this won't make any sense to you, and don't worry, but it's a kind of in-house matter. But I think there is a big, big, big problem in British evangelicalism today where the vast majority of strong evangelical churches are middle-class churches in middle-class areas, and the vast majority of work takes place within that. And the vast majority of money is spent on that. I think it's unbiblical not because of any political thing. It's unbiblical because it doesn't share the passion of Paul and the reality of the New Testament that the gospel is for everyone. Now, of course, people are going to say, yes, 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 that's true. We know it's for everyone. But if you're not acting upon it, then there's something wrong. So um, it is as important. There are people who'd say, well, isn't it wonderful that we've got a church in the West End of Dundee beside the university? Isn't that a key location? Isn't that a key area? And the answer is, yes, it is, but so is the church in Charleston. And the minute we start thinking, uh-oh, it's like, you know, this is uh, a kind of peripheral thing that doesn't really matter. We haven't grasped 
That's not the priority of the gospel. It's like, now forgive me for saying this, I don't, I mean, I love St. Andrews, I love going there, and I love the university and so on, but we were over a week ago, and we were in a place having a meal, and there was a student from St. Andrews explaining to her parents who were over from the States about what it was like, and basically came out with the phrase, um, there's a, a small town called Dundee, and I'm going, we're 10 times the size of St. Andrews. You know, I was, I was, I restrained myself uh, very much, you know, I just, but, but it was like, there's this bubble that people live in and nothing really exists. Oh, they know that something exists outside that bubble, but not in reality. It's like you could be a student here in Dundee and you come and you stay at the halls and you hang around this area and you think that if you've gone to the cared hall, that's it. That's as far as you go in Dundee. You may never know anywhere else in Dundee. As far as you're concerned, although it exists, it doesn't exist. And we can all be like that in different ways. Well, Paul, he, he has this, this different passion. He, as far as he's concerned, he wants to preach the gospel to absolutely everybody. And notice this. He describes it as a debt. Now, you stop for a minute and you think, wait a minute, how can you be in debt to the Romans? Well, there's two ways you can get a debt. One is, I could borrow a thousand pounds of you, and I owe you a thousand pounds. Now, Paul is not in debt to the Romans in that way. But the other is this. You could come to me and you could say, David, here's a thousand pounds. I'd like you to give it to Annabelle. Well, I'm in debt to Annabelle for that thousand pounds because you have given it to me and I've got to pass it on to her. Maybe that's not a good example because I could go, well, we are one and, you know, <laughs> what's hers is mine, so I don't need to tell her. So let's say I had to give it to somebody else in the congregation and you gave me a thousand pounds. I am obliged to pass on that thousand pounds. And that's the sense in which Paul uses debt here. Um, recently, somebody wrote me and gave me some money for the office and the office staff. And, you know, for me, I, I'm useless in money. I just basically put it in my bank account and forget about it. And then I came across the letter and thought, oh, wait a minute, I owe this to the office staff. You're obliged. So Paul, in this way, he's saying, you've got a debt. What's the debt? The debt is this. Isn't it terrible if people die without Christ and without hope in this world? Isn't it terrible that the greatest need that people have is to know Jesus Christ. And we say, oh Lord, if only you told them. And the Lord says, but I have. And I've told you. And I've given you this as a debt. You owe them. That's why you're still alive. You owe them. God has told the world God has sent his son. God has given us the gospel. And he didn't give us the gospel so that we here would gather in a holy huddle and go away. Isn't the gospel wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if people throughout the world found out, and oh yes, let's support some missionary work in far off lands. When God says, but you owe it. You owe it to the people around you. There is a debt that you have. Verse 16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And that's, again, think about that for a minute. Why would Paul say that? Who's going to be ashamed of the gospel? 
Uh, if you know your own heart, if you know the world that you live in, if you know what the gospel is, very easy. Matthew eight thirty eight. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In our culture, which is anti-gospel, the gospel arouses opposition, contempt, and ridicule. What a ridiculous thing to believe. And the church is full of people who act as though they are ashamed of the gospel. How can you believe such a ridiculous thing? How can you believe such a barbarous thing? Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Some of you may have heard a wee clip on Radio Scotland where I was phoned up at five to nine and asked, would you be willing to come and speak about Cadbury's uh, Easter eggs? And I said, sure. When? Uh, One minute. Okay. So we come on, and there's a humanist on talking about Christians claiming persecution and stuff. I was just one of the easiest interviews ever to do, because I just simply said, we're not claiming persecution. I don't care to hoots about Cadbury's Easter eggs, and Cadbury was a Quaker anyway, wouldn't have celebrated Easter. But Easter is about Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. And the humanist actually said this. It was brilliant. One of my favorite moments. The humanist said, that's what the church should be teaching. I went, amen, you got it. That is what the church should be be teaching, and we should be proclaiming it in public. But sometimes you listen, and you listen to church, and you think, why are you not saying it? Why are you keeping quiet? I'll not, I'll not name them, but I visited a minister in this city one time, and I went to see him, and we had a conversation together, and it was clear he was a believer, and he said to me, David, my ministry is finished because I've stopped preaching the gospel. What a terrible confession. And he was right. His church is now closed. Because I've stopped preaching. He knew what the gospel was. And he was ashamed because there were people in his congregation who would take offense and walk away. But how are you going to communicate if you're ashamed of the gospel? You can't be ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? Look what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. You hear that? You hear Christians saying, oh, if only the power of God would come down, if only the power of God would be at work. (laughs) This this is crazy. We've got the power of God. This is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. I watched a program once on Christian television. I know, I shouldn't do it, but I did. And it it was an outreach meeting in Moscow, and I never forget it for lots of different reasons. But one of them was, as a warm up to the speaker, they had Christian power lifters, like weightlifters. Like I wasn't one of them. And they were doing things like chopping bricks like this and then ripping tires apart. And they're going, isn't God powerful? And I'm going, no, I know atheists who can do that. That isn't, how, how, how does any Christian even think, oh, we're just showing that God is powerful. What, because you can chop a brick with your hand and chew a tire with your teeth or something. It, it, why? that's that's a ridiculous example but we still have people saying do you know if only that person would be healed then people would believe no they wouldn't you think someone being healed is more powerful than someone hearing the gospel and being saved it's not jesus said that to us he said you'll do greater works than i've done and he raised from the dead 
It's powerful. Our, uh, I love our uh, Ulster students, and my favorite Ulster word is powerful, powerful. You hear a preacher, powerful. Great, it's what you want. We need it. We need powerful. And think of this in Rome. Rome is the epitome of power. Rome has, if you've ever been to Rome, you know, you've got the Colosseum, you've got all these symbols of power, you've got the army that, that, that dominated and ruled the whole world, and people come and visit and stay, stare in awe and wonder, and there's power. Or think, bring it up to the 21st century. President Assad wants to show his power, so he drops a chemical bomb on his opponents that kills 100 plus people. And President Trump wants to show it's wrong, and so he 57 Tomahawk missiles fire out, bang, bang, bang. That's power, isn't it? Well, we might even talk about power. Power gets used in different ways. I don't know if the adverts are still there because I don't have a particular interest in them. But, you know, the power of Daz to wash white, whiter than white. It's got power. The power to clean, like that. And that's how people think of power. But that's not how Paul thinks of power, and that's not the power of the gospel. Paul knows the, the gospel is the power of God because it worked in his life. See, once you grasp that if God saved you, he can save anyone, you've cracked evangelism. If you start thinking, if, and some of us will think like this, some of you will think, well, God can't work in Charleston, or God can't work in my family, or God can't work in that because this, this, this. Listen, God worked in you, and if God saved you, there's nobody he can't save. And you need to remember that because sometimes we get very proud and we think that God worked in us because we're the, we've got the right minds or we're the right kind of people. But we were dead in sins and trespasses. If the power of God saved us, it can save others. A couple other things about the power. It's not advice to people. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not here. This is how you make your life better. It's not a pep talk. When the gospel enters someone's life, it is as though the, the fire and light of God has entered them. And you know that. And there are people here who even recently, as you've heard and read and, and Listen to Jesus being spoken about. Something happened to you. Something, there was, there was light came on in your head. There was warmth came in your heart. And it's the power of God. That cannot be, well, it can be manipulated, but it's fake. It's just simple. It's just, it's telling people about Jesus. And that power is salvation. Look what he says. It is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation being rescue from peril. Salvation being rescue from life-threatening illness. Salvation, particularly in Romans, being um, deliverance from the anger and wrath of God against our sin. Now, that salvation comes through Jesus, but it is mediated through the Word. If we had a miracle here right now, somebody was, I don't know, lying really, really sick, and then prayed for them, and they get up. That won't save you. What saves you is hearing about Jesus Christ. You get preachers going about, I feel the power, I feel the power, and um, as they boast about the miracles they perform, and they're missing the point. 
When the good news about Jesus is proclaimed, it is the power of God. And when we are telling people about Jesus and when we are proclaiming Jesus, we have more power than President Trump as he presses that button or any charismatic, and I mean charismatic in the sense of just effusive preacher, any powerful person. We have far more power in the gospel than anything this world can ever produce. It is the power of God. We say, oh Lord, if only your power would be here. But it is. And the reason the power of God is missing in the church is because the church has forgotten the gospel. Oh, we've got the jargon, but we've just forgotten. It's about Jesus. The gospel is for everyone. It's the great leveler. He says to the Jew first, because that's what happened, but it's also a priority. We do have a responsibility to the Jewish people, but it's also to the Gentile. So the gospel is a debt, and it's an obligation for us to discharge. It's also a power to be experienced. But lastly, let's look at verse 17. And if I tell you that this is a verse about which thousands of pages and chapters have been written, um, please, those of you who are very astute theologians, please don't expect a great in-depth analysis of all the controversies. Um, I'm I'm just going to teach the gospel. Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now that quote is from Habakkuk 2.4. See, the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faith or by his faithfulness. 500 years ago, in 1517, an Augustinian monk called Martin Luther was reflecting on these words, the righteous will live by faith. From Galatians 3.11 and Romans 1.17 and Habakkuk 2.4. And God used these words to bring Luther peace and understanding as to the question how he could be saved. Why is that important? Because from that came the Reformation and a religious, cultural, social, and political revolution. This is how far the church, the evangelical church, has gone since then. I am reading far more evangelicals saying the Reformation was either a mistake or we need to forget about it or it's not important today. I think it's vitally important because it's this gospel. The righteous will live by faith. We've even got evangelicals who are talking about, well, the new perspective and different things and a new way of looking at it and, and so on. And uh, I met with a man this week who um, was saying, oh, David, I love your passion for the gospel and so on, but there are different ways and different gospels. I'm going, no, there's not different gospels. There's only one good news. There's a righteousness that is revealed in the gospel. Now, let me explain as I... As, This is the simple way for me to explain it. There's so much more, and you will study this for a long, long time. Here's the simple way. You're waiting for the results of an exam or an x-ray. You are waiting. Here, we are told that the righteousness from God, it will be revealed on the last day, but it's now being revealed. That righteousness is not something that we can know naturally or that we can reason out. It needs to be revealed. 
And what is this righteousness of God? Well, again, people argue about this, but I think it's all the things that they argue about. It's an attribute. It's a quality in his character. It's his entire consistency. There's nothing not right with God. You and I can't say that. No matter how good we may be in certain areas, there's always something wrong. Um, My mother sometimes, who in her wonderful way uh, of observing people, would go, oh, that boy's not right. Well, actually, she could say that about anybody. Because I'm not right, and you're not right. And we know what we mean not right at one level. But at this level, we are not consistently right with God. But we can never say that about God. And you need to remember that, and I need to remember that, because Christians far too easily fall into the temptation of the devil when he says, is God really righteous? How can a righteous God do this? How can a righteous God do that? You measure your standard of righteousness by God. You do not measure your standard of, or God by, by your personal standard of righteousness. It's an attribute for him. It's also an activity, especially in the Old Testament, Isaiah and the Psalms, God's righteousness and God's saving actions are the same. They are the covenant fruitfulness of God. It's how God's acts. He showed his righteous acts. But it's also a gift. And I think this is the main emphasis here because Paul was talking about wanting to share a gift. And this is the gift. It's the righteousness from him that he bestows on us. It's God declaring us not guilty. It's In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul talks about us becoming the righteousness of God. Later on here, he'll talk about righteousness being credited to us, or Christ himself becoming our righteousness. Now, what does that mean? It means that you're waiting for the scan results, and you get told, it's clear, it's clear. It means that you're waiting for the exam result that will get you into um, that job, and you're told, you've passed. And what it means in a spiritual sense is that God says to us, you are forgiven. You are clean. You are pure. You are holy. God gives it to human beings. Now, most religion, including most self-styled Christianity, is not that. Most religion and human ethics teach us about our righteousness and our goodness. I listened to a program this week about some Islamic leaders who met with Pope Francis. And they were saying it was wonderful that he affirmed us as a religion of peace. And my initial reaction wasn't the one of, no, you're not. My initial reaction was, nobody is. No religion is a religion of peace. Religion is a curse. If it says you've got to do this, you've got to do this, or you are, we are this, or we are that. No religion can make us right with God. It's only God who can make us right with God, and he does it through Christ. And Paul is coming to to Rome, which is a city full of religion, and he's writing from Greece, which was a country full of religion, and he's telling them, no, the righteousness that is by faith. And that is so vital and so important. The righteous will live by faith, What does that mean? From one believer to another, some people think it's evangelism. Some people think it's growth in faith. But I think the main thing has to be this, and I think the the NIV has this right. It's by faith from first to last. In other words, saying this is what matters, faith. By 
faith alone. You can't save yourself by religion. You can't save yourself by your good works. It is by faith alone. Now, I want to deal with one particular objection, and as we go through this book, we'll deal with others. But there's one here. How come so many evangelical churches have so dumbed down that they think faith has nothing to do with thinking? People say, oh, you just, just have faith. You don't use your mind. But faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Let's go back to Martin Luther. At his trial at the Diet of Worms in 1522, he said, I cannot recant unless the scripture and plain reason convince me. You're not supposed to read and say, oh, I'm just going to accept it. I mean, that sounds spiritual, but it's not spiritual. You're meant to think about it. Paul is going to later say in this uh, book, let your mind be renewed. Just having faith is not good enough. It's who you have faith in. It's knowing the truth. God wants all men to be saved, Paul wrote to Timothy, and to come what? To a knowledge of the truth. He talks about being brought up in the truths of the faith, which is what we hope we're doing with our children. By faith alone means this. It means that you abandon good works, reason and obedience as a means just to save yourself. It means you say, I can't save myself. But the faith that saves is never alone because from it come the good works. We understand the renewed mind and the obedience. We cannot earn salvation, but it comes by faith. It astounds me, but I am certain that there are some of you sitting here this morning who, despite all that you have heard, still think that you can earn a little bit of credit with God. Because you're not like the scum, and you've done some good things, and you know you're a sinner, and you'll admit to it generally, but you've never ever bowed the knee to Jesus, not really, because you think that, you think you are, forgive me saying this, you think you are Donald Trump, you think you are the deal maker, that you can cut a deal with God, and God says, no, you can't, you can't. Habakkuk had complained about the proud Babylonians being used to, raise, to attack Israel. And God says, look, these proud Babylonians will fall, but the righteous will live by faith or by his faith or by his faithfulness. We live by humble faith in God. He who through faith is righteous will live. That's another way of putting the words. Again, I think just both are right. It's through faith that we're righteous and we live. And we live by faith. The righteous by faith will live, and the righteous will live by faith. I've been thinking about that all week, just what the differences are in that, but um, time has gone. So let me finish with this. We live in a society where people are really confused, where fake news and trying to work out the difference between real news and fake news seems almost impossible. We have great news. We have great news. Paul, in one sense, you read through Romans, and Paul's giving us bad news in that he's saying, you can't save yourself, your family can't save you, your society can't save you, your religion can't save you. But he's saying, this is the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's great news. 
whoever. Remember a man coming into this church one time and he said, can I come in? And I said, yes, of course you can. I didn't think you'd accepted people like me. I said, I haven't a clue what you're talking about. But I don't care who you are, you're welcome. You are welcome, whoever you are. And that is just the astonishing thing we have about the gospel. It's why it doesn't make sense for mission organizations and evangelists to say, now we're going to target this type of person and we're going to go for this type of person. We're going to go for that. No, we're not. We're going to go to every person and tell them we've got good news for you. And especially when we come up to Easter, it's not about Cadbury's Easter eggs and pretty pictures and to be honest, you know one of the worst things I find about Easter is all the religious stuff that goes on nonstop from people who don't really believe in Jesus. I just think, no. But we've got a great opportunity to tell and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul's so excited, he's indebted, but he's, he's, he's so keen, he's so enthusiastic. And I hope that those of us who are Christians, I hope we're challenged by that. I was certainly challenged by that. I was looking at it and just thinking about, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. But now I owe a debt. He's paid for all my sins. But now I owe a debt to the people I meet. And I think they're really nice people, but I I owe them. But I must tell them about Jesus and ask the Lord to help me know how to do it and invite and encourage people and so on. But also for me as a Christian, and for those of you who are Christians, your sin is taken away, your guilt is atoned for. You have troubles and woes and difficulties and all these different things. We're not denying that. But your big problem, your big issue, has been dealt with. And you are free. You're free. And if you're not a Christian and you're here, and even some of what has been said, you... Yep, you begin to grasp that. Let me tell you this. That this gospel, this good news, is as much for you as it is for me, any of the elders, or people who've been coming to this church for years. This good news is for you. Now, your issue is, what are you going to do with it? You're going to push it to the back of your mind? You're going to reject it? You're going to ignore it? Or are you going to say, yeah, yes, Lord, I want to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ because it's only then that you will have that righteousness from God. Instantly, by the way, you won't instantly become perfect, but you will instantly have the righteousness from God the minute you stop trusting in your own righteousness and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You open that letter, that $10 million from the Nigerian widow, it's not for real. You know that, of course. But this is for real. Why would you refuse it? Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us. We have such great news. You remind us of it continually. Help us. Grant, O oh God, that... Um, our partners, our spouses, our children, our parents,
our neighbors, our friends, our work colleagues. Grant, O Lord, that they too would hear this good news, that they would see it in us, and that they would come to know you. Lord, each of us longs for a day when we would not need to say to our neighbor, know the Lord, because all would know you. And grant for those of us here who are unsure of where we're at, that we would stop looking at ourselves and instead look to you, Jesus, and just simply say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by... Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.